everyone. Welcome to the Weird World Podcast, where we talk about weird stuff on a podcast. My name's Gary. I'm Dean. Hi, Dean. Hi, Gary. We want to give a little shout out to listener Tori R., who liked the goopidity weird bit. She must be a new listener, because that was an early one. It's a very long time ago. That was weird bit number 12. I am glad that she liked it. Me too. Gwyneth's particular brand of bullshit is despicable and vile and greedy, and I'm glad others agree. I wish more (laughs) did. So thanks, Tori, for listening. Okay, what do you got, Dean? Well, on that note, we are going to take a dark turn here in a multi-part episodes. This is going to be the tale of the bloody benders. I don't know who out there has heard of those. A lot of people probably have. They are. I've heard of them, but I don't know details. Well, you're going to hear a lot of details here. Okay. We're going to start with here. Part one is going to be walk through the history of them. Their start in lovely Kansas where they settle and did their foul deeds all the way up to many of those foul deeds and then we'll then move on to the worst of those deeds and their ultimate demise although one of the one of the i guess part of the legend of the bloody benders is that they effectively got away with it oh well well, way to bury the lead there I don't know that that's the lead. Oh, but I, don't, I mean that. Okay, that's uh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. That's I think yes. It's, it, we, I, that's I mean, if you've heard anything about them, you know. So I mean, they they did some terrible things, fled into, and the, and the legend is that they sort of just disappeared off the face of the earth and never seen again. Seen again. And again, not this episode, but later we'll actually learn that that's absolutely not true at all. It's very well detailed exactly where they went, but they did get away with it. Oh. Okay. Carrie? What? Would you like to start our story with some geography? <laughs> my my favorite love, subject. Love, love, love geography. So the setting for our story today is Kansas. The time is about 1870 or so when our story starts. Kansas, for those of you who aren't sure, is right in the dead center of the U.S. It is the Middle, the uh, actual like official center point of the continental U.S. has some kind of little plaque in the ground in Kansas. Oh, really? FYI. It is really official. It is official. Oh. Yes. I, you, you thought I was just making it up. Yes, I did. No, but I, I guess some place has to be the smack dab it does. center of the country. In the middle of the 19th century, Kansas was caught up in the conflict preceding the Civil War. It was called Bleeding Kansas. Some terrible things happened there as they fought over whether Kansas would or would not be a slave state or a free state. One of the, some of the people, by the way, you may have heard the name Jesse James. If you have, you should know he's a goddamn monster and a war criminal who did horrific, horrific things, killing women and children during the lead up to the Civil War. So, you know, there's your hero. The time we're talking about here, 1870, now it's just past the Civil War, but still a key point for this story and to understand how the benders could do what they were able to do and get away with it for, for as long as they did is that Kansas was kind of the edge of civilization within the U.S. The U.S. population, the European population, was displacing native tribes in this part of the country at the time. They had moved the Osage uh, Native American tribe from Kansas into the Indian Territory to the south. And so it just basically opened up this 
free land in Kansas for yeah. white settlers to, to rush into, and they did. I don't. Know, it wasn't like a gold rush kind of population boom, but it was a, a steady trickle of folks moving in. And, um, a, and this is what they ended up doing almost everywhere, right? All, all over the, the whole the middle west. of the, of the yeah. country, yeah. Okay. They had a thing called the Homestead Act here where in, um, in 1862, in, in where if you, they'd give you, like they plotted out land all over the place and they give you like 160 acres. And if you did some improvements on that land, like built a house or something like that, or started to farm it, something like that, you got to keep it. After yeah. five years, if you improved it, you got to keep it. That's a good so, deal. It's a great deal. It wasn't their land just, uh, just sure. a very few years ago. Uh, but, I mean, in fact, we'll hear about this later, but the people at this place at this time would go artifact hunting all the time. They'd go find all kinds of, like, uh, arrowheads and stuff like that yeah. because, oh, look, here's the people we kicked out and mm-hmm. murdered. So, Savages. Yes, yes, the savages. So that's critical because what that means is that this area was m- close to lawless, Governments were, were brand new. They were just starting to have, you know, the uh, roads were just being built. The railroads were just starting to come into this part of the country. The county where this takes place, called Labette County, where the vendors settled, had been just founded in 1867. And they came in there and they moved into the area in 1871. So this is like you know, borderline new. virgin yeah. territory. So that that's I just wanted to set that because that's important in the sense that there was a, a lawlessness there. There wasn't a lot of civilization. There was maybe, you know, these counties are starting to hire sheriffs and maybe a handful of deputies, but it was the kind of wild, wild west setting that the benders descended onto in 1871 and did their terrible things. So this was the world, though, where two German immigrants arrived in October of 1871. At least most people assume that John Bender and John Bender Jr., when they showed up in tiny Osage Township asking about, you know, did they know of any claims nearby that they got land claims they could they could take and purchase from the Homestead Act? People folks assume that they were father and son. Never hundred percent sure that they were, but that was the assumption. They they, uh, they went by the uh, names John Bender and John Bender Jr. John Bender would become always known as Pa. Bender. They were effectively taking advantage of the 1862 Homestead Act that I mentioned, where you can claim 160 acres of land. They had it all parceled out in places like Kansas and, and other parts of that area. Yeah. And more or less a virgin territory, at least again, except for the Native Americans yeah. who had been recently displaced. And if you, if within five years you had improved the land, it was yours. You had to oh. keep it. So Improved it how? Building a log cabin? Start a farm, and- build, yeah, build some kind of a permanent structure, start a farm, something like that. Start okay. a, you had to do something to improve the land, and they would come and check, uh-huh. and then it was yours, and they'd sign the deed over to you. These went really fast, and so pretty soon you had to actually buy land, but it's still relatively cheap in this part of the country. The two men who ran the general store in the little town of Osage, where the uh, John the Benders showed up, they said, hey, "Sure, hey, you know what? We know where all the claims are. They both had claims. We'll show you around and pick one out." So they showed them around, and the two newcomers picked out 160 plus acres just outside of Osage, which is really close to a, a brand new city called Cherryvale, which had just showed up as well. So that's where they were. The um, little town of Osage, outside of where the Benders would make stake their claim, 
had actually been founded by five families who were held together by spiritualism. Oh. It was that spiritualism was the belief, very popular in the 19th century, that psychic-powered mediums could communicate with the dead, mm-hmm. as we know. Cherryvale was founded just after Little Osage was in uh, late 1870. So they, they are literally at... These are all brand new places. The county's four years old when they came to town. These two little towns are less than a year old when they came in. This is just brand new country. Yeah. So, so the benders come in on the little wagon, the rickety wagon pulled by a horse, and you know st- stake their claim. John Bender, known as Paul Bender, he was the, he was very private. He always had a scowl. He was said to be super unapproachable. People thought he was maybe sixty years old or so. He was just this irascible, super unfriendly guy. He spoke almost no English. He communicated with his son in kind of just like grunted German. People thought assumed it was German. They were always right. thought to be German. We don't know for a fact that they were. They could have been Dutch, but they, they probably were German. There was, more, there was a, a lot of immigrants coming over from Germany. He had these deep-set eyes and a, and a big, thick beard and kind of scraggly hair that led someone to describe him as, quote, wild and wooly-looking man. John Jr., his son, was far more outgoing. He may have been mid-20s, maybe late-20s at the most. Oh. He was slim, said to be pretty good-looking, approachable, fairly nice, but he was kind of weird and off-putting because he w- he would often laugh inappropriately in this weird kind of titter laughter <laughs> and to the point where some people thought he might have been a little bit simple, that he huh. was a quote half wit. Did he speak but English? He spoke English with just a little bit of a German accent and he spoke German too to his father, he, right. but he spoke English pretty well. He was pretty fluent in English. So with the help of those, the two guys in who ran that general store in uh, Osage, they found their 160-plus acre claim. It had access to the Drum River, and it was situated right along the Osage Mission Trail. This trail was basically the only route traffic could use to go east and west across Kansas and eventually north into Missouri and more settled areas, right? Mm-hmm. So it was critical. Everybody, basically, if you're traveling through this part of Kansas, you were using the Osage Trail. So having a 160 acres right along. It's kind of a, a relatively narrow strip along the trail was you know, a pretty valuable piece of land. So they settled in, the two men, and they started to improve their claim mm-hmm. as they had to. How did they do that? They built a 16 by 24 foot cabin. Oh. And this cabin was the scene of some of the most horrific things that ever happened on the American continent. I'm stunned by 16 by 24. When you thing. hear about what happens, it's shocking and what went on in that cabin? It's just amazing that it was that small. Sixteen by this, this, not, this is not yeah. big. It's one room. Yeah, it's basically one room. It was divided by a canvas sheet that was, I guess, like a wagon cover. Oh, they yeah. used it and they divided the the, the room basically in half, uh, right across with this canvas sheet, and in the front was kind of a that essentially a general store slash dining area slash sleeping area in which they had some dry goods on a table up there. So you, you step in, you see some dry goods on a table. I guess to your right, to your left, you see a uh, a, a bigger table that they use for dining and feeding their guests because they're basically setting up a general store slash inn, a stopover, a way station. 
because there's a long day of this trail. There wasn't a lot of services like that. We could stop in, stay dry, be by a fire, get fed a hot meal, and maybe spend a night on like a pallet bed. They'd th- put a pallet, I don't know, they'd, I don't know, some something on top of it, maybe not, and you'd spend the night there. But it was the only place you could do that. Is that or, or sleep in the cold or the rain or the snow or something like huh. that. So it was... Again, it was perfectly situated along this this very widely traveled trail that they could set that up and be immediately successful. They immediately really? had lots of visitors and people like that, even though their yeah. dry goods were said to be just pretty shit. They just get whatever, and yeah, okay, we got some beans there and some whatever, you know, things that, that people needed on, on the way through. The back room behind the canvas had a hole dug in the corner as, I guess, like a cellar with a big... A flat stone foundation at its bottom and that was where the family slept and that was kind of their private quarters so on the other oh. side of the canvas was sort of the private quarters of the family wait now, they didn't sleep in the cellar no no okay no. it was just for storage yeah and uh otherwise i guess i don't know if the, you know i don't well from what i read i don't know if there was like beds back there there must have been yeah but that's where they effectively lived okay so Ma and Kate Bender followed Pa and John Bender into Kansas later on in the spring of, I guess, 1872, I think. Um, so a few months after, I, I may have that year wrong, but I think it was of 1872. It was a few months after uh, Pa and, and John, you know, built the, the cabin and, and started their dry goods general store slash inn. Kate was, again, thought to be the daughter, and so therefore the brother of John. Some people thought, wait, or maybe they're, are they married? Are they married or are they brother and sister? Again, no one was a hundred per sure, as Rachel would say, on, on that last <laughs> part. Most people seem to think they were a family. They were the benders. Nobody ever thought to ask? Nope. Okay. You kept my business to yourself I guess. in the old West here. This was definitely the West. Ma was a lot like her husband. She was maybe five years younger, maybe mid-50s. She spoke little. I remember this is when the mid-50s was 88. <laughs> you know, you were very crazy old. She spoke little or no English, just like Pa did. And she had, again, also spit out her German in this guttural accent. She was a little heavy, a little on the heavy side. And she was also like Paul, maybe more so. She was so unfriendly, so unlikable that, and, and just kind of sinister looking, that people called her a she devil. Oh. It did not really? help. She, she claimed mediumship skills, she, spiritualism, mm. and she also advertised her ability to brew concoctions for charms and spells. So oh. she had a kind of a, a witchy vibe to her as well. Kate was small and like her we think brother had also kind of reddish brown auburn hair. She was, however, said to be beautiful, like very attractive. Remember, this is Pioneer, Kansas, so low hurdle for that. (laughs) There there are drawings of her. Why low hurdle, Dean? Why? why? I'm just kidding. Pioneer, it's a hard life. You know, she she was thought to be in her early 20s, maybe no older than 25, but man, living out, in the West like that, under those conditions, it was it was tough. That's all I'm saying. Okay. So that's what I mean. But she was kind of this vivacious, super outgoing, friendly, uh, you know, kind of personality. 
And she also advertised herself as a spiritualist and a medium like her mother, her alleged mother. Her psychic powers, she said, included the ability to see your future and even even some light healing, Mm. some healing powers, she, she told people. Part of her appeal, by the way, was also that she was an open advocate of free love. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the local young men thought that included her and them, if you know what I'm saying. She was said to be accommodating. Okay. I'm going to wink now for the audience. <laughs> so she, she was, you know, she was, she was immediately, she made an impression in the Cherry Vale and the surrounding communities. Which I imagine the whole free love concept would have been pretty outlandish yes in the 1870s yes right? it was it was been around for a while but it was really? yeah, it was on the fringe back then? oh it was decades it had been advocated i'm sure at least huh. but it was you know it was always on the fringe and strange and strange yeah. you know spiritualism remember was in, insanely popular but most christians who didn't believe in spiritualism were not fans of it they, they found right. it somehow you know the spiritualists would eventually say no 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 we're all christian too we just right. talk to dead people but some a lot of Christians felt threatened by spiritualism, and frankly, they should have been, and and viewed it almost like witchcrafty kind of a thing. So well, I understand that. So her being this medium and whatnot didn't always go over well with the locals. Yeah, but it drew a lot of attention. A lot of people did believe in. Again, it's just an area that there were a lot of spiritualists. Osage was founded by spiritualists. So the two young vendors. Kate and John Jr., they'd go into Cherryvale and socialize. They'd go to church every Sunday. Uh, Kate would hang up circulars advertising her psychic and healing powers, and she inculcated this circle of friends and clients, and she, she became very well-known. And as, you know, as, as much as Kate and John were sociable, though, Ma and Pa would almost never be seen outside of their homestead. They mm-hmm. were just, they didn't go to church usually. They just were just very unfriendly taciturn, very private people. Kate, although had better, even better social skills than John. Again, remember John would have this weird laugh and he was kind of off-putting even though he was nice and he was, he was good looking. And even though she made friends easily, over time though, a lot of people saw kind of a nasty streak in her and that she, she would eventually be seen as almost like a fake friend to people. She would get angry very quickly and be very sullen if she didn't get her way. Mm. And very often not getting her way meant like you didn't give her money to for a reading, for a seance or something like that. If you, you know, she'd, all, she'd be pushing her, her mediumship skills on people all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't go along with it, she, she, she had a way of sometimes getting nasty and unfriendly. So the family settles in. They open this store slash inn. They plant an apple orchard behind the cabin. That's a and, good idea. Yeah, it is. And and that would, you know, make a little extra money selling mm-hmm. apples to the, the people who pass by on the Osage Trail. The, the constant stream of travelers brought people to their doorstep all the time. They developed people would even recommend, oh, you know what? You're going to Independence or something like that? You can stop by the, the benders if you need to stop by overnight if you yeah. can't make it in, in one day or something like that, or if, if the weather turns or whatever, or, or if you need to get some supplies or what have you. So something started happening, though, that in hindsight – you would think would have made the community realize these folks in the mist weren't the best people to have as neighbors. But it took a long time. As we'll tell the story, you'll see that it took some pretty overt things before the locals in southeastern Kansas they realized that they had this murderous monsters right living among them. But it started in, in little ways that in hindsight, again, were, were clues. Let's start with those then. 
by late 1871, the Benders, again, had this kind of circle of friends and even admirers, mainly what? thanks to Kate. What? I thought Ma and Kate didn't come until 1872. You know, I think I do. I have a, a correction, an instantaneous correction from just a few <laughs> minutes ago. Pa and John Bender, I think, arrived in late 1870, I believe. Okay. And Ma and Kate came in the spring of 1871. By the latter part of 1871, they were kind of firmly established. Kate had a lot of this circle of friends and admirers. They had established their store and their inn. And a lot of the friends of the Benders were fellow German immigrants, at least some of them. Again, there were quite right. a few German immigrants. And one of those was Edward Earn. He owned a shop in Cherryvale. And in fact, he had been one of the two men that had helped Pa and John find their claim when they first came to town. Right. Earn brought over his former foster mother from Germany and her daughter, he brought them into the United States with plans to marry that daughter. Okay. Ern's foster mother had sold everything that they had in order to come to America. So when she got to the United States, she had $3,200 in cashier's checks with her and this little metal jewelry box that was filled with just like her most precious jewelry or anything of value. Mm -hmm. I didn't her. know cashier's checks were a thing back then. Oh, yeah. Interesting. That's they, a lot of money. It's a, it was a big chunk of money, but it was there was like their whole stake, and right. they were going to you know, start this new life in the United States. The new wife, or soon to be wife, I guess, of Ern's, got to know Kate. They're a similar age, and so she and her mother went over to the Bender house for a visit. They hadn't been in town long, and I guess I don't know. They're super paranoid, but the, the mother brought. The cashier's checks and the little metal box with her because you just you always had that on your person because you didn't trust any place yeah, else. I yeah, guess. I guess. But they did. They brought it with them. So they're visiting, chatting. So like, oh, what's going on? Oh, the latest gossip here in Cherryvale, blah, blah, blah. Kate started to wax eloquent about all the Native American artifacts that you could find out there. They're all You could find arrowheads and stuff like that if you just went walking around, there on uh, even on their own property. Mm -hmm. So they said, let's go for a walk. So the four women, Ma and Kate and the foster mother and the daughter, went out for a walk looking for artifacts. During the walk, Ma says in her, uh, you know, her German to her daughter Kate that she's sick, she doesn't feel well. So she goes back home to uh -huh. lie down and rest. They go on and continue their walk and look and find some arrowheads, I'm sure. And Kate says, hey, I know. Let's go look at the mounds. There were Native American burial mounds out in that part of Kansas. This is the were in lots of parts of the Midwest, the United States. Let's go look at them. Fascinating stuff. So they do. They're out. They're gone for a while. So when the three women come back to the homestead, they settle in. They start chatting again. And naturally, Ern's foster mother and soon-to-be mother-in-law looks for her valuables that she left behind. She doesn't Can't see them, them where she left them. She is frantic. She tells Kate what happened. Kate's like, oh, my God. So the Kate says, oh, my God, that's terrible. Let's look for Let's find them. So they search everywhere. They are not found. Kate helps them search high and low, and she finally says, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. But there are lots of bandits and outlaws along the trail here out in front of our house. When we were gone, yeah. Oh my God, they must have come in and stole your metal box and cashier's check. And apparently nothing else but right. your metal box and 
cashier's checks for $3,200. Kate was so, so angry. I'm just as angry as you are. This is so embarrassing. Oh, my God. I feel really terrible about this. Ma says, I didn't see nothing in her German to Kate. And the, the mother-in-law is highly suspicious. She yeah. does, but what can she do? So she finally leaves in a huff with her daughter. The next day, Ernest Earn, told about what happened, goes back to the benders looking for justice. Uh-huh. He goes in there, he storms in, he accuses them. You st- give me, give me the stuff right now, and we'll call, you know, we'll call it a day. Just hand it over. I know you took this stuff. Let's go. They deny, deny, deny. And, you know, Kate's like going, again, oh, my God, it was it had to be bandits. I feel so terrible. I'm really sorry about what happened. So this terrible fevery all over here. Mm, what are you going to do? Unconvinced, Ern then asks them again if they'll hand over his soon-to-be mother-in-law's property. But this time, he's got a gun in his hand. At this same time, unfortunately for him, there were two cattle drivers that were there in the room, they had stopped over for lunch on uh-huh. the way by. Again, this is the, the Osage Trail. Both those men, like, what's going on here? They cover their weapons, and it's it's not like they're, you know, they're saying, no, no one's going to shoot anybody here. I don't know what you guys are disputing about, but just move on, partner. Yeah. Ern just feels <laughs> feels dumb. He, yeah. He's like, God damn it, if I just would have waited, I could have put this gun to their heads and I know they would have get, but now I've blown it. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be in trouble maybe even for pulling a gun out on the uh, nice Bender family and these poor women, Kate and Ma. So he just, he, he leaves. He's disgusted though. He's sick of, of uh, we, we think Kansas. They almost immediately, he, he packs up his mother-in-law and soon to be his fiance minus $3,200 in cash right, checks yeah. and that jewelry box, and he leaves Kansas for good. Wow. That would turn out to probably be the smartest thing he ever did. Well, I, yeah. Because who knows? And there was also Kate's psychic medium forays into the area. She would use these kind of to allow herself to make some cash, sure, but also she'd learn some secrets and locals and, and, and make friendship and meets a lot of people because of her spiritualism and her psychic abilities and mediumships. One of these people was a part-time hotel worker in Cherryvale w- uh, named Julia Hessler. Kate also worked part-time in that same hotel, so they knew each other. Julia's brother had recently died. I think I have that detail right. I read that in one source. So... She naturally, to, to Kate, that's like, oh, great, perfect, pray. You know, this is someone I can I can foist my right, yeah. mediumship skills on. So she tells Julia about her ability to communicate with the dead. And she says, why don't you come over to my house one night soon and we'll have a seance. And I think I can get contact with your brother and we can talk to him. Mm-hmm. And Julia said, I am super up for that. Let's do it. So one night, Julia goes to the Bender cabin. It's dark. It's like I said, it's already nighttime. You got to do that. You got to have the right atmosphere for the seance. And Julie enters and she immediately sees this place is a freaking pigsty. Yeah. It's just kind of filthy. It's disheveled. It stank terribly. She couldn't even identify exactly what it was, but it, it had a real nasty stench to it. Hmm. There were very few dry goods on the table over there. It's like, are you, you're really half-assing this whole general store kind of thing going on here. The larger dining table... Over on, on the left side was on, on that side of the big canvas sheet that she saw. And from behind the canvas sheet, 
she heard this distinct kind of whirring sound, a buzzing sound. So she just goes there, I guess, maybe, apparently, probably when Kate wasn't looking, and she just kind of shifts the canvas aside, and she sees just a swarm of flies. Ooh. And they're concentrated back in the back corner where the cellar is. Uh-uh. So she, I'm sure Kate just, hey, what are you doing? Get out of there. And Kate sits her down at the table and says, you sit there at that end of the table that is right against the canvas sheet to the back of Julia Hessler. Yeah. And Kate takes the opposite side of the table. No doubt, Kate then starts doing her, you know, mumbo jumbo, whatever, yeah. her seance nonsense. I'm sure she's talking at a rapid pace. She would, she would gesticulate. In hindsight, again, they think like she's distracting you. Yeah. So at Kate's direction again, Julia closes her eyes. She says, okay, we've got to close our eyes now. And let's concentrate on communicating with your dead brother. Let's, let's you know, tap into these spiritual forces. So Julia does that. And we don't know. She, maybe she heard something, some faint little sound. But she decides to pop open her eyes very quickly. And when she does, she looks across the table. And there's Kate Bender. And standing behind her is the entire rest of the family. Yeah. All of them. Okay. And they're between her and the door. As I recall, right. the only door to this cabin. She would later say she instantly felt this urge that I need to get out of this place. Yeah, I don't know what's going on, but these people are creepy. Yeah, I need to go. So thinking fast, Julia says, "I got to go pee." And there's an outhouse, of course. This is no indoor plumbing in these days in this right. place. And so she just sort of pushes her way through the door, with not waiting for them to say, you know, over there, whatever. She pushes her way through the door, and she walks outside, presumably toward the outhouse, and then just boom, <laughs> takes a turn, darts, and runs off into the tall grass into the night toward the trail road. Right. As she sprints away from the cabin, Julia hears a shot ring out from behind her. It whizzes right by her, and so she drops to the ground and tries to lay as still as she can in the grass trying to look small, and she hears the entire family come trampling out of, of the cabin, and they're just they're search, clearly searching for her. She hears right. their footsteps all over the place. They have a couple of faint lanterns, and she sees the light ricocheting all over the place as they spread out and trampling the ground looking for her. So she didn't know what waited for her if she stayed there, but she had no intention of doing so. So she starts crawling forward, just agonizing through this kind of wet dirt, slithering through the grass like a snake. Finally, she just figures, okay, how far am I? I don't know how much further to get to the trail. Yeah. It's now or never. So she bolts up, and she just, again, she makes a break for it, and hoping it's just too dark and they won't be able to, to get off a good shot. Yeah. And she flees out into the night again, away from the cabin. Later on, a cattle driver was would say how he was just he was camped for the night somewhere nearby, and he's just like whatever eating his beans by his campfire. And all of a sudden, this woman just comes screeching through his campsite, <laughs> flees right by him, doesn't stop where he is, yeah. and fleeing toward another homestead of this respectable fam- respectable family. I think I think she knew that family, right? Uh, Julia did, and she just flees right for that homestead. And he's like, "What the hell was that?" Mm-hmm. So he just figures, you know, probably who knows what that was. But the thing is, I guess she told some people, Julia did. Yeah. And people just like, yeah, it was probably just the misunderstanding. It's like, hey, they shot at me. I don't yeah. know what, I don't know, but nothing happened from this. Right. There were no repercussions whatsoever. 
That's the weird. So, like I said, there's in hindsight, it's like something right. should have been done, but nothing was. And this well, is one of those incidences. And the urns would have reported the, to somebody, the right? Urns did report that, and they, and they did a accuse lot of money. them. They accused them of stealing. But again, people said, people. I, I think most people believe, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of thieves on the right. Osage Trail. Thieves probably did stop in and, and take your stuff. And so the urn, like I said, the urns left. No one really believed Julia about her story. So, so far, so good. Yeah. The bandits go back into business. Jack Reed. He was a man who lived in Cherryvale. Again, that was the nearest decent-sized town to their homestead, to the Bender's homestead. He was one of the many young male admirers of Kate Bender. There were quite a few around there. I can remember she was vivacious mm-hmm. and sexy and believed in free love. So he was, I guess he was basically a gambler. He was a professional gambler. So he regularly traveled a route around the area and be, between Cherryvale and Independence. And the homestead is more or less in between those two areas. So he got to know the family, got to know Kate pretty well. He would stop in for a meal or even sometimes to spend the night fairly, you know, not regularly, but but more than once. And because he was just basically looking for places again, looking for fresh, fresh games. He'd travel around the towns of the area. Yeah. So a lot of time he liked to stop there and chat up Kate. He did exactly this in July of 1871. He was on his way again from Cherryvale to Independence to, to do some gambling. That night, he stopped at the Bender Cabin, figured I'll have dinner and then, you know, continue on my journey uh, to Independence. He was accepting an earlier invitation that Kate had made to him. And, you know, it's like, yeah, who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> yep. She also, of course, knew that he was a gambler who had to carry cash on his person. Uh-oh. So Jack Reed was thinking this lascivious thoughts when he went there for dinner at the Bender Cabin. Kate was there alone, apparently. At least at first, Kate was there alone. Ma Bender may have been there, too, but she's just like the you know crazy lady in the back behind the canvas. Sadly, though, not long after Jack got there for dinner and who knows what, two cock-blocking friends of his dropped in and made themselves comfortable. They said, oh my God, we were, dri- we were just cruising by. We saw your horse. How's it going, Jack? Let's hang out. And he's like, mm, yeah. dudes, go, leave. <laughs> Kate, who was normally very welcoming to people, was oddly rude to these two new guys. Reed, Jack Reed, took this to mean, okay, she wants to be right. alone with me. Nice, yeah. I'll be rude too. So eventually these two guys, they feel the chill and they take a hint, they get up, they make their excuses, that we say we're going to be on our way, we're... we're can continue on to independence. They're going there just like Reed was going. So he says, okay, that's great. I'm probably going to spend the night here, but I'll be out first thing in the morning. Tell, you know, our associates that I'll be there right after breakfast. You'll see me tomorrow morning in independence. I think it's like seven or so miles away. You And you walked that. Oh, wow. Kate. Kind well, of he had a horse. Did he have a horse? Well, you said they saw his horse. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. You're right. He did have a horse. So it probably wasn't even that long. Okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. Kate was kind of, when he said this, he said, you know, tell the guys I'll I'll see you tomorrow morning. Kate tells the two guys who are now leaving, the two Uh friends, he says, you know, uh, don't tell them that. You don't need to tell anybody that. Quote, Reed doesn't know how to keep his word. End quote. Hmm. Like, no, no, no. Don't bother telling them. She wasn't super subtle. Yeah. As you'll, you'll see. So as the night wore on, though, Kate started being kind of distant and not super friendly to Reed, too. And he's just like, what's going on here? It's kind of mixed messages here. He also noticed a strange stain 
on the canvas divider that divided the two halves of the house. He thought that's weird, but didn't think much more of it. And like Julia Hessler before him, he also saw or heard at least a cloud of buzzing flies from behind the canvas. Again, you don't think, hmm. Well, did it smell bad too? Yeah, it must I'm sure have. it did. So it grows late and Reed eventually realizes, okay, it ain't gonna it's not happen, happening, yeah. you know, but it's late enough now. So Reed figures, I'm tired. I will just spend the night here at this little rustic inn, just like he planned to, just sadly <laughs> alone. <laughs> and so he settled on his pallet bed and he used his saddlebag as a pillow. Nice. That's the saddlebag that held his gambling stake, his oh. cash. Sometime in the very early morning, Reed groggily awoke, and he hears Kate outside sort of whisper-talking to someone. He thought she was talking to John and Paul Bender, and they had not been there before, so they must have arrived sometime in the early morning. So he's thinking, what's that about? Why are they outside talking? And one version of the story, by the way, has Jack Reed, by the way, named Jack Raider, and his nickname was Happy Jack. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I believe his name is Reed. And and this ver this other version has him hearing Kate and John and Paul talking, but talking with another man, not a family member. And then according to this version, Reed or Happy Jack hears a loud like a cracking noise, like maybe a skull oh. being cracked, and then something very heavy hitting the ground with a thud. A body? Again, I believe that um, that's probably not what really happened. The best source on this is a, is a book called Hell's Half Acre, and a lot of this is, I've used a ton of sources, but a lot of this is from the book Hell's Half Acre by Susan Janosis. Uh, get the book. It's a fantastic read. It's super detailed, super exhaustively researched. And again, on a later episode of this story, the Bloody Bender story, we'll talk about the escape and of, of the Bender family, she goes, it's almost like a third of the book at least is about that. We're not going to go nearly that much detail about that part of the story, but she does, and it's pretty amazing. So th- she does not include that in her version, this this thud thing. I don't I, I don't remember it being in, in, in that. Regardless, whatever it was, he's up, people out there talking, what's going on? He may or may not have heard a, a body fall yeah. off a horse. And just then... Reed feels the presence of Ma standing in the pitch black dark inside the cabin near him, like she's hovering over him. Mm-hmm. Instinctively, he feigned being asleep. Now, whether this, this was worry for, you know, the health of his head resting on the saddlebag because, uh, you know, she's going to kill him for the money, or if he, he thought, oh, you know, if they know I'm awake. I'm a potential witness to what just happened outside. Again, there's two versions. It's not clear right, what, what happened. Yeah. One, either way, he fakes like he's asleep for his own safety, and it works. So he is able to, I don't know if he, I, I doubt he slept a wink the rest of that night. Yeah, I would Just wouldn't. faked it yeah. for a few hours, and he got up. I guess he made himself a quick breakfast at the stove without even waking, I guess, the benders, <laughs> and he got the hell out of there. I'm surprised he even stayed for I, that. Yeah, I wouldn't have <laughs> bothered with breakfast. No. no. 
So he goes, he finally comes into independence and he tells all his compatriots there, his fellow gamblers, about this, what he des- describes as kind of a near miss the yeah. previous night at the Benders. And they just, no one gives his story any credence. They huh. just think, oh, you're just a big little, you're just a little pussy. You just, uh, you just got, you scared yourself. Yeah. You spooked yourself. No one's going to do nothing. And, hmm. and so no one takes it seriously. It's weird. And even, so he gambles that, you know, he does he does the routine and does all his gambling, hoping for a big win. He doesn't. He wins very, very little. Certainly not enough to kind of, you know, take off and start a new life. But that's yeah. just what he does. He, may, he usually went west to east and Independence right. was on the, on the west. Instead of going back uh, through where the Benders live and back towards Cherryvale, he kept going west. And he left Kansas and never came back again. Yeah. Good for him. Yes, it was good for him. This part of Kansas had a lot of German immigrants, as I mentioned. It also had some Irish immigrants. All of the Irish and many of the Germans were Catholic. So Kansas had a fair share of Catholics, still does. Uh-huh. One of those was named Father Paul Ponziglione. Oh. He was a tireless parish priest in this pioneer land. Ponziglione, was he Irish I'm or gonna say German? Italian. I'm going to say he was probably <laughs> Italian, but he was a Catholic. He was a priest. They had to send those, those priests from Italy out there. Sure. They had lots of followers, but mm-hmm. I guess they couldn't, you know, have a German <laughs> priest. He'd been out there for a long time. He'd been out there since 1851 when Kansas oh, wow. was brand new, pretty much. He was a Jesuit, and he would travel all throughout the state collecting money for worthy church causes. Mm-hmm. So, prime. He, one day, in 18, I think it's August 1871, he was heading up the Osage um, Trail, from his base camp, which was the Osage Mission, where he attempted to convert Native Americans to this new faith by promising them eternal damnation if they didn't go along with it and accept it. It was a a real strong appeal. Uh And so in August, here he is. He's he's out on the trail. He's going along the, the Osage Trail. I can't remember which city he was going to, but he is like riding his horse hard because he is just barely ahead of an approaching storm. It's right behind him. He needs to find shelter. So he passes right by, of course, the Bender cabin. He spots Mm -hmm. it, and he rushes to it, puts his horse up, and and pops right inside, right? So he comes inside and to this, what he thinks is this safe haven, right? Mm -hmm. And Kate, hey, she greets him with a warm smile. Mm -hmm. She probably, presumably she knew him. If If he traveled around a lot, she probably knew exactly who he was. As always, though, Kate made her guest comfortable. And she naturally asked about his business. What's you up to? He said that he had been out raising money for an orphanage. When he told her this, her face, he would say later, lit up. Kate, Kate, knows, a, Kate knows a score when she sees one. So Kate goes over to the stove and she starts making coffee. And the father, Father Ponziglione, noticed that she seems really nervous. So her hands are shaking. And she's pouring coffee, and she's like, why is she so nervous? This is weird. Yeah. And then seemingly from nowhere, Pa and John Bender just pop in. They arrive home. I, I, that, happen, that seems to happen a lot. It makes you wonder if they, if when a guest came, they would pop outside and then wait for the right time to come back in. Because, you know, it, it, I've always seen it multiple times in these stories, it seems like they just arrived shortly after or sometime after this visitor. Right. Arrived. It's kind of odd. What are they out doing? It's nighttime already. What are they out doing? And, and yeah. a storm is coming. So Pa and John are suddenly there. The priest sees Kate just like like share these weird looks 
with her brother and father. And now Father Ponziglione starts to get nervous. Yeah. He's not, again, he's not sure what's going on, but he doesn't like it. Kate had sat the priest. What do you think? She she uh, opened. She pulled out a chair for him. Against the canvas at the, partition. At, at the head of the table on the side against the canvas dividers, right? Yeah. She sat across from him. And he noticed that the two men, Paul and John Bender, were uh, no longer in the room. It's like suddenly they're there. And now they're, they're not there, at least in the front of the room anyway. Right. So he actually starts to get a little panicked. He's got good instincts. Father, he jumps up. And he used the exact same excuse Julia Hessler said. He goes, I got to go pee-pee. I got to use the little priest room. Uh, and so he, he goes outside, I probably like walks. I imagine him walking toward the outhouse and then doing like a little football deke. And then he went for his horse, saddled it very quickly, popped, jumped on that horse, and rode hard out to the trail. Uh-huh. He, he said that as um, despite the downpour, he felt this incredible sense of relief as yeah. he rode away from the Bender cabin. And even in that cold, unsheltered prairie rain was better than whatever waited him back in the Bender household. Hmm. So they weren't super smooth about it if you know, these people were getting vibes. They weren't, but they seemed to be... You notice who they're targeting. And I'll talk about this later, probably in, in the next episode. They, it, I feel like what they did was they targeted people who weren't living in the immediate area. They were travelers. They were typically not from a Cherry Vale or right. an Osage or, or one of the towns right there in the immediate area. Well, locals wouldn't be really stopping there. Probably not, no. Yeah. But but they did occasionally, except for Julia. Julia was a purist, and she was local. She lived in Cherry Vale. Um, well, but that was different. She yeah. was lured there she was, to, for under, a seance. Yeah, yeah, for a seance. But still... Uh, and and I don't think I got the feeling she didn't have any family there. She was there by herself. She's a young woman living alone, as a, and that also I think made her vulnerable too yeah. in their minds. I'm I'm speculating on that. So now comes the story of James Fierick. It's a little more you know sad, I suppose. He and his wife Mary immigrated from Ireland via New York City, and then on to Kansas. So they came around. They settled for a while in New York, and they were mm-hmm. one of those people who went waves moving westward from the urban centers on the East Coast into the heartland of the United States. And, and so they came out to settle in Kansas. He was a contractor. And he did well. He was very successful. He's very busy. Again, there's tons of buildings. a building boom going on. So he's yeah. always busy. And like so many others, though, they wanted a homestead. And the I guess, I guess the free land must have been claimed by now because they were saving up to buy a piece of their prairie paradise. So they had to pay something. Was, land was cheap by this time. But I, I guess that, that tells me that you know, the free homestead plots right. like the Benders got were gone. Mary took their young son back to New York City to visit her sister and her family there and effectively to spend the entire winter there. And she'd come back in the spring. Mm-hmm. James wanted to not only buy a piece of land while she was gone, but actually start building or even maybe even complete the house and have this fantastic surprise. Like she's going to come home and here is their house. They yeah. lived in one of the towns they, in, in a, whatever, a rented house, something like that. But here's our, our homestead, yeah. our acreage. We're, we're starting this new life. He really had all these plans for them. He left along the Osage Mission Trail, of course, on, ho- on horseback with cash 
to buy their new homestead. He was he was probably going to Independence where there was the, the land. You'll hear a lot of people were going to Independence because it was the major commercial center of the time in the area, uh-huh. and it had the the land office where right. you actually can go and register and buy, buy land. He was planning on staying with a family called the Wattons, W-A-T-T-O-N-S. They knew the Wattons already socially, and they were going to be their neighbors. They were, the land they were buying was in Howard, nearby Howard County, and the Wattons would be their nearest neighbor. So he, he was going to actually stay with them uh-huh. and spend the entire winter with them while he built the house next door. Oh, okay. okay. And while Mary was in New York City with right. their young child. He and so he lived, they lived by the way in Baxter Springs. So he left Baxter Springs, which was on the other side of Osage and the Bender Cabin from where uh, Howard County was, where the Wattons lived. And he telling Mr. Watton, I guess he wrote Mrs. I'm sorry, he wrote Mrs. Watton and said, Okay, tomorrow morning I'm gonna leave. I'm on my way over. I'll see you. Uh-huh. Okay, but James did not make it to Howard County. He did not spend the winter with the Wattons. Time went on. He had never shown up to the Wattons' house. Mary is getting concerned because he hasn't written to her in a long time. Yeah. I'm not 100% positive that, that Mary knew he was going to do this. She thinks he's back at the home at Baxter Springs. Right. There was, I think the land and spending it was, was a surprise, and I don't think she knew that. Oh, the wife. They, yeah, his the wife. wife. His wife, yeah, Mary, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, knew... The, the, and again, they knew the Wattons, but he didn't. She, I don't think she thought to, you know, hey, to check with them. to check with them. Yeah. So she's she's writing home, and her letters are going unanswered. Yeah, and so she's getting worried. She, after a few weeks, and the weeks turn to months, she's frantic. Yeah, but she's too scared. She's too nervous, just with her and a small child, to go back to Kansas all by herself. Smart. She just can't do it. So she stays at home in New York City, and just starts writing everyone she can think of back to Kansas. No one that she contacts had seen James. He's not in their house in Baxter Springs. She even wrote to the railroad stations, and they said, no, we have not sold a ticket to James Furick. Sorry. Finally, Mary does hear back from Mrs. Watton, and to her horror, Mrs. Watton says, no, he he was supposed to come here. He was going to buy land. He was going to spend the winter here. He never made it here. We have never seen James since. And there's no authorities for there, anybody to contact. There's again, there's very little law enforcement. I'm sure, you know, what's the what's the local sheriff going to do? The under who has a county, probably yeah. <laughs> one or two, you know, a tiny number of law enforcement people. And just my husband's not. I mean, what you know what they're going to think, don't you? He, he took ditched. a runner. He did. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Which they did. Many people did. Mrs. Watton told Mary. I mean, I would want somebody to do a wellness check. Just go check and see if he's dead in the... They may have. Uh, they may have. He wasn't in a, at the home in Baxter Springs. Okay. I'm sure they did. Okay. Whoever, whoever they rent that house from, I'm sure, had relet it yeah, already. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So there, he was just gone. Uh, Mrs. Watton told Mary that it had snowed the night when James was to start his journey. So, okay, he's supposed to start and a and, uh, uh, surprise snowstorm hit. So she said, you know, I'm sure what he did is he sought shelter from the snow rather than he was actually he was going to try to make the journey in one night and he was she figured okay he wasn't able to he must have stopped right. somewhere and he would naturally have stopped somewhere along the Osage Mission Trail the mm-hmm. trail everybody used they had of course you know the Wattons and Mary they had never heard of the Bender family they didn't know them at all so they had no idea that one of the places he 
almost certainly would have stopped. One of the few places he could have stopped was the Bender cabin slash store situated in Labette County on yeah. the route from Baxter Springs to Howard County. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't know anything about that and didn't know to, to ask about that or anything like that at all. So it wasn't until late October 1872 when clear physical evidence showed that something was indeed wrong in southeastern Kansas. So again, James Farrick is just disappeared. But here in October of 1872, two boys are just having fun by the creekside, by a river, and by a river near Harmony Grove, a town in the area there, and they find a body. Okay. It's just a few miles. The town is a few miles northeast of Cherryvale. It's several miles from the Bender household, but in the same area. Nearby the body, there's a lot of, you know, trees around right along the riverbed. And they spot a woman's dress in a plum tree. And looking at it, probably with a stick, they see a big red streak across the front of the dress. Okay. They go back and, you know, again, look at the dead body in the river and they see that the man's throat had been slit and his head, his skull was bashed in. Uh The injuries were devastating. The the coroner would later look and and, and say the brain was barely more than than gray pulp. It had been smashed in viciously. A woman named Martha Jones, she responded to the description of this man in the newspapers. Uh-huh. And so she went to the authorities and said, my husband, William Jones, he's been missing for about a month. He had $250 in cash with him because he was also going to, I think he was going to buy some land. In fact, $100 of that 250 stake was borrowed from a coworker. Oh, no. He was a construction worker. Jones was. Uh-huh. And actually, I'm sorry, I take that back. I'm sorry. He was going to pay off the debt that they owed on their farm. So they would own their farm free and clear once he paid that debt. Okay. His destination, of course, was Independence. And Jones had never reached Independence. She, his wife, had, you know, done the whole thing, contacted everybody. No one had seen him in Independence. He would have taken the route. Naturally, that would have passed right by the Bender's house. Right. Jerryville. And And the Bender's house are right along the route between Harmony Grove and Independence. Another... Strange disappearance. Disappearances were one thing, but a body was hard to ignore. So now they had a body, and Mm -hmm. they had an identity for this body, William Jones. Many assumed, as we talked about with Virick, that they disappeared. Those people just had left. Right. And, you know, worst case, they maybe was banned or something like that, or or who knows. But with this body and the state of the body, it was like, okay, enough's enough. And all of a sudden... The people of southeastern Kansas rose up in anger, and they wanted something done about this one now. It was, it was sort of the, kind of the, the, the second to last straw. I mean, they knew there were bandits and horse thieves and stuff like that, but most of the time they didn't bash in someone's head and slit their throat and, right. and, and, and drop them in, in the river. And so and maybe even the brutality of, of the murder touched a nerve because they just needed – someone needed to pay. They needed justice. So the mob – first set on R.M. Bennett. He was the guy who was unlucky enough to have owned the land where Jones's body was found. Yeah. It was literally all he had. Yeah. He says, okay, no. How dumb do you think I am? Right. He professes innocence, 
but they weren't having it. A lot of people were calling for him to be hung. Yeah. And so he says, okay, hold on here. I'm actually a witness because last night or the night, he, I guess he went, went back and said, you know, that night, he's what, been gone for about a month or so? There was a night about then that I heard a wagon on my property near my house and it had this weird sound. It was right like dead of night, early morning. It had a strange sound to the wagon. That must have been the people. I heard them going to and from the riverside, the mm-hmm. river. So a posse goes to the river and they do indeed discover wagon tracks going to and from the creek mm-hmm. where the body had been dumped. And the tracks of the wagon indicated a faulty wheel. One of the rear wheels of this mystery wagon was dished improperly. You know that's a thing. Mm-hmm. That's I, 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 It's something to do with the axle. Something to do how you, how you, you know, <laughs> just set up the wheels on the axle, something like that. But when, I guess, what can happen is if you carry overly heavy loads, mm-hmm. the, the wheel can be dished and, it, and it's, it's faulty. It's, it's, it still rolls, but it's, it's, you know, it's malfunctioning essentially. Bennett pounced on this. He says, okay, look, that explains it. I heard, I told you the wagon made a weird sound, a right. dish wheel that could have made that sound. And hey, my wagon is perfect. My wagon wheels are looking good. So the group says, okay. And they rush right to his house. They check his wagon. Sure enough, all four wheels, perfect working order. Mm-hmm. Mr. Bennett feels really good about that. And they said, they essentially, okay, you, you must not have done it. The dead, the whole, the finding of the dead body thing though, it rippled throughout the region and people in the area suddenly remembered that back in late March, months before, in the year, uh, something had happened that we kind of ignored at the time. A group of folks out looking for native artifacts, as a lot of people did at the time, they had found a body partly buried under a pail of hay. A pail of hay? <laughs> is it a pile of hay? A bale of hay. Bale. Uh, well. Is it a bale of hay? I, I guess not a bale of hay. A bale big of old, hay is like a big rectangle of, you know. Some hay. Yeah. How's that? Let's okay. call it a pile of hay. Just a okay. generic term. It, this body, so they, this body had been treated pretty badly by hogs, pigs, and other scavengers. So it was chewed up real badly. And it was also pretty decomposed when it was found. So it was totally unidentifiable. They had no idea who it was. But they did see the back of the skull had been crushed with a blunt instrument, much like Mm -hmm. the body found in the water. Now, I'm assuming that the throat had been scavenged, so they couldn't tell if the throat was was slit or not, but it probably was. So, but again, this didn't. That, that was months ago. That didn't cause the area to go in uproar, but the, yeah. the, the other guy did. I must, like I say, it was sort of a, okay, enough's enough. People are dying here and people are going missing. This is crazy. There's disappearances well, and now there's deaths. So do we think that was the contractor guy? It could be. We don't yeah. know. No one ever knew. No, no wait. Well, we, we're going to know. I'll hold that okay. for later. We're going to know everybody who is, most people identified a couple were not. Okay. But then quickly, horror built on horror. After the discovery of William Jones... More horrors awaited Southeast Kansas in October. I guess starting in October of 1871, in fairly quick succession, three more people go missing. Henry Dick, he don't, no one snicker out there, please. <laughs> oh, okay, Carrie, very much. Well, I, but I hadn't snickered until you said that. I'm taking this, this is very somber. This is. Podcast. He, he was Henry Dick was the cousin of Leroy Dick. Apparently, a cousin he didn't super get along well with, but I think his wife liked him. So Henry came, and Leroy Dick, by the way, he was an important businessman. He plays a major, major role in the discovery 
of the Bloody Benders deeds. We'll hear about him more. But he was kind of this businessman. He was also a commissioner of Cherryvale. He's kind of an important person in the area. Mm-hmm. So after this visit from cousin to of Henry to cousin Leroy's uh, house and family, Henry sets off on foot for Independence. And we know what's between Cherryvale mm-hmm. and Independence. And though Leroy never checked on the well-being of his cousin, turns out they would later find out Henry had never arrived in Independence. Yeah. So he had gone missing. But they didn't know. In this case, they didn't know he was missing for months. Right. In fact, I don't think they knew he was missing until the whole thing's exposed later on. Oh, wow. Benjamin Brown left Cedarville late in 1871 for Howard County. That's uh, we, we heard about that earlier Earlier from the – was that the Ferrix? I I've already forgotten. Yeah, it was. (laughs) He was going to try to get a loan to buy land. And he had $50 in cash with him to show like earnest money. Hey, I got 50 bucks. I just need a little more. I'm going to be a farmer. You can bank on me, right? Yeah. It was everything they had. They had scraped everything to get that 50 bucks. He went to to, uh, Howard County and he was denied the loan. So on the way back, he stops off in Independence to see if he can, it, like, what land can I get? What can I get for 50 bucks? Right. Just, just give me a scrap. I'll do anything. We got. We want to get started here. And so on the way, north of Cherryvale is a, count, is a town called Lador. It's northeast of Cherryvale. And he, you know, I looked at the map. I'm not, I, I don't see how that works because it doesn't look like it's on the way. But regardless, this is the way the story is told. He had traded horses with a man there. I guess that was not uncommon. Right. You know, my horse is tired. I'm still traveling. Yeah. Here, you give me your horse, I'll give you my horse. I don't know. Yeah. It's like, I don't It's weird. And that's it. That man he traded horses with was the last person to ever see him that uh-huh. would ever come forward. Benjamin Brown also went missing. Brown's wife, Mary, went looking for him when he didn't make it home. Is everybody's wife named Mary? Pretty much. <laughs> this is the Midwest. They're all Marys. During her search... She happened to stop at the Bender cabin uh-huh. since it would have been on the route. I think she thought her husband was going back toward Independence, so this would have been on the route back to Independence. Kate Bender was like, oh, my God, that's so terrible. She's genuinely concerned about the fate of her husband. He's missing. Mm-hmm. That's just awful. Keep an eye out. And she offered her a psychic reading, oh. but Mary's passed. William McCrotty was an Irish Union Army veteran. He was also on his way to Independence. He was going to buy land at the land office there. You can see yeah. the motif. Uh-huh. McCrotty left Independence to go back to his home in Parsons. Parsons is the county seat of Labette County. It's east of Cherryvale and east of the Bender. Independence is, w- is west of the Bender household, so the Bender's right in between those right. two places. So he's going to go back to Parsons because he needed to get a friend to be a witness for his land claim, right? On the way back, he goes through Lador, same town that we heard of a minute ago, uh-huh. on, on the way to Parsons. In Lador, McCrotty borrowed a quarter from some good citizen because he wanted to have dinner. He needed dinner. Oh, that's so, nice. Yeah. Again, these people are walking very often. Yeah. This is nuts. Uh, <laughs> seems so amazing to me. So they get to chatting, and McCrotty mentions that um, you know he's going to be heading back to Independence. He's going to Parsons, and then he's going to go back to Independence to, with this witness to, um, for this land claim. And the man who gave him the quarter, his name is Dan Gardner, he said, you know what? When you do that, why don't you stop by the Bender cabin? 
it, you can spend the night there. It's in between on your journey back towards independence from Parsons. Now, I, I you know, the story I read, I, I don't know if he just needed a signature from someone. I think he just needed a signature. So he can buy, he's by himself. So he goes back to Parsons, get this signature from this witness, and then we don't know. Yeah. He's never seen again. We assume he would have taken Dan Gardner's advice and stopped by for a meal and, and, and a, a, a pallet bed yeah. at the Bender cabin along the Osage Trail, but we don't. No, he is also one of the disappeared. So the mm. dinner cost him a lot more than that 25 cents, that's yeah. for sure. If he had not stopped there, he would never have known about the Bender Cabin. Maybe he sees it anyway, well, I don't know, but yeah. we, we'll never he know. He was passing by it. Yeah. Most in the area thought that horse thieves or you know roving bands of bandits were were just like taking advantage of stray travelers. These people were almost always by themselves. They assume that without ever seeing this though, right? Yes. Or, okay. Yes. And they, yeah. I mean, again, by this point, they've only found a couple of bodies. Yeah. The guy under the hay and the guy in the river. And people start connecting the dots though, of these, this rash of disappearances. And a lot of people noticed, Hey, some of these recently missing men had gone through Lador. And you know what? Isn't Lador known for its bad element? It had a bad rep. A lot of like cattle wrestlers and thieves supposedly hung out Lador. It's like, and just for whatever reason, it had the local, that's the the nasty place where bad people hang live, right? Yeah. Lador suddenly was vilified in the press. Everybody's talk, is, is talking shit about Lador. Hey, something's going on here. People are going disappearing. We found some bodies. It probably has something to do with all those bad guys living in Lador. And the people mm-hmm. of Lador get pissy about that and get very defensive. But it gets this reputation of kind of this outlaw town. Now, we fast forward to Christmas of 1872. Another horribly mutilated body, scavenged by feral pigs again, is found. This one is found outside Cherryvale. Mm-hmm. So word goes out. Everybody hears about that. Who is this person? We found a body. Does anybody know somebody it might be? Yeah. His father could only identify his young son, John Phipps, by what? the hogs had left behind of his clothing. His face was completely torn to shreds, but he he came to see the body because his son was missing and the father recognized his clothing and identified that um, body as John Phipps who had been missing for not that long at all. His father noted that my son was carrying $300 in cash on him and that cash is gone. Yeah. So The hogs (laughs) ate it. The hogs, no. The next to last straw was perhaps the saddest. And eventually, the most consequential of all these disappearances it was that of George Longcore. George Longcore is a blacksmith, and he was doing well. He and his wife, Mary Jane, had, yes, some derivation of Mary is a, is a law. <laughs> he and Mary Jane had moved to Kansas from Iowa in 1870. This is, again, this is late 1872. And they settled in a town called Onion Creek. Mm-hmm. But... Tragedy struck when their son died while Mary was very, very, very pregnant. Oh. Mary then followed her son to the afterlife a one week after giving birth to their baby, Mary Ann. Oh. So George God. was crushed. Yeah. He lost his son and his wife, and he was left with a tiny infant oh. all by himself. But you know what? He stuck it out. He and Marianne stuck it out for another two years, making a go of it in Onion Creek. During this time, though, his in-laws back in Iowa 
his wife's parents yeah. had been urging him again and again and again. You can't do this by yourself. You can't yeah. raise a baby. That's impossible. You're a man. Yeah. Bring him back. Me and the and the grandma his will take care of the baby. You need to come back to Iowa and and bring Marianne with you. And so finally, in eighteen late eighteen seventy two, he did. So his wife died about eighteen seventy, right? Mm-hmm. He gave up on Kansas, and he and Marianne would be heading back to Iowa. Long Corp dallied, unfortunately, in Onion Creek a bit longer than he should have. He was just kind of procrastinating. And this was December of eighteen seventy two, and it had been kind of a warm spell. Sadly, he let that pass, and finally he was ready to go. And when he was ready to go, like the day of winter hit. Yeah. Real winter hit southeastern Kansas, and the temperatures just plummeted, and it started to snow. So they're taking the Osage Mission Trail, of course. Mm-hmm. And that, as you know, leads right by the Bender cabin. That's the last scene of George Longcore and his little two-year-old daughter, Marianne. Two days later. A man named John Hanley and some of the unnamed man, a friend of his, they pulled into the Bender cabin. Uh-huh. He was a freight hauler. They were freight haulers, and they had stopped there many times. They knew the Benders well. And so they get there, though, and this is two days after George Longard had gone missing, right? Uh-huh. Kate burst from behind. As they walk in the door, Kate just burst from behind the canvas and just glared at the two of them. And, and she's immediately unfriendly. Yeah. She says, um, we're not cooking. We're not going to start a fire tonight. Nothing, you know, we're not serving dinner. Uh-huh. The weather's freezing. It's like, you're not going to light a fire? Are you serious? And Kate was just super inhospitable. Then they had, they had a dog in their wagon, and suddenly the dog comes bolting into the house, and it rushes under the table and starts scratching frantically uh-huh. at the floorboards beneath the table. I think it was the table in the back of the cabin. I'm not sure if it's the main table or the table behind the canvas or not. I'm not sure. Right. But just after the dog comes uh, chasing it is Paul Bender with like a big old club ready to bash it in. Yeah. And so the Hanley, you know, calms everything down. He's able to pull his dog away from the floorboards and from the table and he put it back in the cabin and, and ties it up. So they go back. They, they want to have a meal. They want to stay warm. They want to spend the night. But yeah. John Jr. is there now, John Bender Jr. And he's also... Very unkind. He says, no, well, we can't start a fire unless you pay for the wood yourself. They say, okay, well, we'll pay for the wood. But while they're doing this, they hear Kate and Mob Bender behind the canvas having this animated discussion in German. Uh-huh. You know, like, and, and they just, it's just, just weird. Something's going on here. So they give up, even though it's going to be, they're going to be in the wagon where it's, again, it's freezing, it's yeah. cold. And they leave despite the fact that they're going to have to ride through the snow. Weeks later, Handley would visit again. He's kind of hesitant, but again, the Bender Cabin was the only place that you could get a lot of things, and uh-huh. he really needed to water his horses. So he kind of reluctantly says, okay, well, see, we see what kind of greeting I get this time. And he goes up to water his horses, and voila, Kate is just friendly and fun again, and... He just chalks it up to to weirdness, and he doesn't yeah. he doesn't connect anything. He doesn't think anything more about it. But then, finally, would come the case that would break the bloody benders. Their critical mistake, as we'll find out in the next episode, was picking on someone with power, with pull, and with a very large family with the resources to go looking and try to find their missing loved one. Mm. And we will pick that up 
next time. Next time. So that's it for now. Next time we'll pick up this case. It's the case of disappearance of William York the York and the, the very prominent York family of Kansas. And again, that would be the finally the bend over his bit. The, <laughs> we gotta keep that. How did in. that happen? <laughs> Finally, the benders, not the bendovers, the benders had kind of bitten off more than they could chew, and it would lead to their their downfall. Okay. So we'll pick that up next time. It's about time. Okay. Yeah, I know. Thanks for listening. Sure. Wait, I wasn't listening. I was actually not listening. I was you just were. no. So you're not. Oh, you're not talking to me. <laughs> no, you're I'm not talking. talking. Okay, I'm talking about the listeners. All right, listen we'll to you. this downer of an episode. <laughs> what I said. Talking to the listeners, listening to this downer of an episode. Oh, that's not right. Yeah, it is kind of. <laughs> I, won't, I won't deny that. But it is. It is. It's. It, it's even more. Well, okay. It's going to get a lot worse <laughs> in the next episode. Just buckle up. We got to balance it with yeah. my uplifting, happy. Topics. That's true. All right. Okay. See ya. <laughs>